Good morning, everybody, again. I have the pleasure of introducing Arlene M., who came to us from Rochester as our keynote speaker this morning. When I called Arlene, she was just delighted. She was overwhelmed that I had thought to call her. And I had several very nice telephone conversations with her, which were like having many meetings. It was always uplifting every time I called Arlene. Arlene has worked in public information. She was institute, institutions coordinator for five years in our New York North. She has started several Al-Anon, I'm sorry, Alateen groups in the Rochester area. This is her last year as delegate in our New York North area. And she is the first minority delegate. And Best of all, she's mother of ten, and all children by the same man. That was important. <laughs> Very important to put that in there. <laughs> and she's been an Alteen. And I keep getting Alteen. I got Alteen on the brain. I've been really thinking about Alteen the last couple of days. That's why it's on the brain. And I really talked to uh, an Alteen person last night, a 17-year-old, for quite a while. And uh, I got so much insight that I can hardly get it out of my mind to get on with what else I'm supposed to be doing here. <laughs> so, Arlene, would you please step up for your corsage? Thank you. <laughs> Is that okay? Yes. I'll try not to poke you. <laughs> Beautiful colors with this. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I think it'll be all right. That little ledge right there is just a little... He never knew who those kids were that were running around the house. <laughs> he didn't know them by name. He wondered if they were neighbors' children. I tried to convince them, but of course you know how that is when they're drinking. I give my last name because my husband broke my anonymity many years ago. Although I tried to hide, and I didn't want anybody to know on my jobs or anywhere I was, everybody knew. Uh, I'd like to tell you first a little bit about me. I was born and raised in Rochester, New York, and there's very few Rochesterians that are still there and remain there. At that time, it was a time you could leave your doors open, your windows open. You weren't afraid of anybody coming in and doing anything to you. It was safe. You had family that lived close, that lived all around you, and it was peaceful to know that you have that safeness there. Of course, it isn't too much like that today, but I like to reflect back to those times because they were good times. It was good to know that you had somebody there for you and that you had people that cared. My father and mother lived right around the corner from me. This was my first rejection they gave me away when I was six months to an aunt and uncle to raise me. And I remember I was about four years old, and they had a social worker come to the house. And she tried to fool me. She said, 
How would you like to be Arlene Bradley? I knew my mother and father's last name was Jackson. I said, no, I want my own mother and my own father, and I want to be a Jackson. So she told my aunt, don't adopt her. She knows too much right now. But many years, I always wondered why they chose to give their oldest child away. And my father explained to me that it was because they were getting ready to separate. And they didn't want me to have to go into a home. Now, mind you, these people never did separate. So it took me a long time after coming into Al-Anon to make amends and to really understand what had taken place. I also felt rejected by a boyfriend. His name was Bozo. <laughs> he was from Louisiana and he was a Creole. And I thought this was neat. I had somebody that could speak French too. He was handsome, really nice, I thought. He gave me a bicycle, he gave me a typewriter, he gave me all kinds of things. And I was really infatuated with this guy. Our families were very close, and they just had the wedding all set up for, you know, about seven years in advance. And one day, Bozo told me, he said, I'm sorry, but I found somebody else. And I said, what happened? Why are you leaving me? He said, I want a woman with a 22-inch waist. And I hadn't had that since I was born, so <laughs> I knew I didn't qualify but it hurt me very bad, and it really set me back. I worried about this a long time. But I had nobody to talk to about it, because they always said he would come back. He would come back. But Bozo is still drinking today, and he's left his wife and children, and maybe that's the best thing that happened. Our higher power knows. I met my husband. Well, he was standing on a corner, leaning against a pole. Now, that should have told me something. <laughs> but I was naive because I was brought up very sheltered. You see, I know what it's like to have everything, and I know what it's like to have nothing. And my husband showed me what it was like to have nothing. He was leaning on a pole, and I was coming home from school, and he said, I'm going to marry you someday. And that made me happy. You see, he was from Chicago. And I figured, boy, somebody from Chicago, not just little old Rochester. He must know what he's talking about. And he had a suit on. Boys in Rochester wore their jeans, and they had their plaid shirts. And, I mean, they weren't sharp. And this guy knew how to say different words that I never heard, like, dig it, you know, baby, and this kind of stuff. And I was really enthused by a guy that knew how to say these kind of things. Because the other fellows I liked, that I knew and went to school with, they would say, hi, Arlene, can I carry your books? Um, when can I come over and see you? And they were just so mild, so meek, and so, you know, they just weren't that hip kind of guy. As he was leaning against the pole, he pulled out a ring, and he said, this is going to be yours someday. 
He said, how about taking it now? And of course I said, yes, yes. <laughs> and he put it back on his finger and hasn't given it to me yet. But this was love to me. You see, I didn't know the meaning of love. Although my family showed me love, and I can't, all, even though all of my, my uncles drank, my grandfather drank, my father drank a lot, but he was a nice drinker. He would come in and give us money when he got drunk. So I liked this kind of guy. So I just figured anybody that drinks gives you money. My uncles did the same thing. They'd come in. They were drunk. My aunt would just put them on the couch, lay them down. They'd throw all their money on the floor, and we'd pick it up. <laughs> so I said, this is good. So I had never seen any other kind of drinking person. And the women in our family, it was funny, but none of them drinked but one. And that cousin, we sort of hid her upstairs when she'd come until she woke up, and then we'd throw her right out the door. But the women didn't drink that much. The women were always watching out for the drinking family members, making sure nobody would look at them, that they could come in and lay down around the house. And they tried to protect me and not let me know, have them out of the house by the time I'd get out. But I'd come, I was sneaky. I'd come and sneak and see them all lying there. But I loved them because I wanted that money on the floor, and I wanted to get, make sure I got it before they left. And I did. But back to John. I don't want to tell too much about him because he doesn't remember too much, especially if he doesn't remember our children. But he asked me to marry him, and my family fell apart. The neighborhood fell apart. Everybody knew about him, but I refused to accept that I could not change this man. I figured if I gave him the love, the caring, if I took care of him, showed him the way that he would love me back the way I loved him. Wrong. I tried to make him happy by having my family buy him cars. By having them give him money. Because you see, the man refused to work. I, that didn't seem to ring a bell. Although my father worked, my uncles worked, everybody worked. But I figured someday he would work. So I was giving him the benefit of the doubt. He was my God. Even though I was raised in the Baptist church and I knew about God, this to me was a living God because to me he was so sharp. He had it all together, I thought. And then I remember his sister coming over and giving me a wedding ring and an engagement ring. That didn't click. Why didn't John do it? But I never asked the question. I just figured family sticks together. And then I remember her buying my gown that I was to wear that night of my wedding. After we went home, of course. And that didn't stay. Now, he drove in front of the house with some other people and he was leaning in the car on the way to the wedding. My father and my uncle who had raised me refused to come in the wedding. They sat in the car and cried. 
My mother and my aunt came into there and cried. But I didn't think anything was about. I thought they just crying because they were so happy. But they knew. And I didn't know. After the wedding, John took me home to his mother's house. You heard that before, last night. Took me to his mother's house, and I went and I got all prettied up, I thought. And he said he was going out to get my luggage from my house because I lived a few blocks away. And I waited. And I waited. And I waited. And I waited. A knock came at the door, and it was his mother. I said, where's John? She said, he'll be here. That was about four in the morning. Finally, about seven in the morning, John came with my suitcases, drunk as a skunk, threw them over. I said, where have you been? He said, I have been out with my friends celebrating our wedding. <laughs> but I accepted that because I knew he'd change after. I knew that if I was just good enough, dressed nice enough, bought the right kind of perfumes, had the right makeup on, that someday John would just accept and be so happy to have me as a wife. Well, we started having children. And we started having pain. At least I did. The holidays were terrible. I remember trees being knocked down, Christmas trees, and my little kids all getting together, setting up the Christmas tree while their father fell asleep and wondering if he'd get back up and knock it back down again. I remember him arguing, fighting with the children and me around the holidays. It seemed like holidays. He seemed to get worse. And I never could figure that out because these were happy times as I was coming up and I couldn't figure out why they were so unhappy for him. Not realizing that his home life had been bad. That he had father who was a minister but always carried his liquor in his briefcase. That his mother had been through the same kinds of things. I didn't know that then. I might have could have understood a little bit. One thing I did know, there was no help for me out there. You see, they didn't, if they had Al-Anon, it wasn't around me. And nobody spoke of it. Because I'll tell you one thing, in the black community, they thought you didn't let other people know what was going on in your home. You kept it quiet. They knew anyhow. But we just tried to keep it quiet. We didn't want others to know the pain. You didn't even tell your minister the pain. You didn't tell anybody the pain. You held it all in. I didn't know people that separated or left their husbands. There was nobody around me that did that. Everybody stayed together. I didn't know that they were getting beat up. They were getting misused. I didn't know their lifestyles were that bad until after. But they refused to leave. They stayed. They stayed in those homes. And they went through the terror. So I believe that I should too. And I did stay. 
I searched all over for help. I even went to libraries. There was no literature there. The only thing there was how not to drink so much, what to drink, and different things like that. There was nothing on somebody else's drinking affecting the family or the wife or the children. Nothing in the libraries. And I was a person raised to go to libraries. I went to counselors. The counselors kept telling me, you can't change him. You have to leave. They were on the right course, but they never mentioned Al-Anon. They never mentioned a program where people were out there to help me. And I just couldn't believe that this, they couldn't be changed. Hard head, my uncle used to say, soft rear. I had one of those hard heads. I went to doctors. They only gave me pills. Pills to calm me down. I wanted pills to calm him down. <laughs> Ultimately, I used to sneak the pills in his coffee. And I had a wide awake drunk. A wide awake drunk. <laughs> and I'm the only one that was passing out because I was so tired. <laughs> I would think different ways, different things to do. I call the police when he'd take the car and go and say, pick him up, he's drunk driving. The police never did that. They had more to do than run around looking for him. I'd be there with a broom when he came in to hit him, but he'd always grab the broom. I never did hit him. My aim was very bad. My children saw all this. And one of my daughters said to me one day, she said, Mama, she said, we never blamed Daddy, but we blamed you. And I said, why, Pi? Why would you blame me? She said, because we thought you knew better. You weren't drinking. That really got me. That really stuck with me. But if I hadn't been an Al-Anon, I couldn't have accepted that. But I did then. And I could see back that there were changes that could have been made, but I wasn't ready to make them. I went to family, and I had friends. Friends that couldn't come over my house, but I could go over their house because they just didn't want to be around a home where there was somebody cussing and swearing and mistreating everybody and not knowing how to even take care of himself and falling out on the floor and knocking over lamps and things like that. I even got them beautiful places to stay. We had gorgeous townhouses. They were pretty, but they meant nothing. Material things meant nothing when you have somebody in there that's destroying everything. And destroying themselves too, and everybody else around them, they meant nothing. A lot of pain. I was in my own prison. I had built a prison of my own. And do you know I had the key to get out of that prison and wouldn't let myself out? I think that's why I went into institutions, because when I visited the prisons and the jails, and I talked with the fellows in there, one of them was my son, who had never heard my story, and I saw him crying. And I talked with them, and I told them how 
much important it was, how much more important to stay out, how much people loved them and needed them out. And what were they doing in there with master's degrees, with doctorates? And all the women wonder, where the men are? They're in jail. They're in prison if you're looking for them, a lot of them. But they don't wish to remain on the outside. And that pained me. But I knew I could identify because of my own prison. I was out here free to make any choices I wanted to. I had family. I knew people. But still and all, I was not ready to make that choice. And you've got to be ready, able, and willing. And that was not a part of me. I wanted to change him. He was my guy. It was a very painful time. And during this time, his brother got killed by one of his friends. They were sitting together. And after his brother, younger brother, got killed, his drinking became worse and worse, and we suffered more and more from that. You see, I realized that with a disease, the more that's on them, the more they take out on everybody else around them. And nobody, I think I knew two people that mentioned that they were in AA at that time, only two. And they weren't in our neighborhood. So I wouldn't know. And we didn't know. And of course, I couldn't have gotten them there anyway, as you all know. And then I went to work every day. I worked for City School District, where I will still work, 23 years there. And that was my only outlet to go to work. I was insane, but I was around people that I thought were sane, didn't know they were going through the same thing. I guess we were all crazy together. And I loved my job because I was working with teenagers. I was working with their families. I could identify with their hurt and their pain because I was going through it. And we had a secretary, and I'll tell you, I have a special love for secretaries. On any job, if you get in with the secretary or the custodian, you've got it made. And the secretary one day, Shirley, said to me, she said, Arlene, have you had enough? And I was crying. You see, I used to cry alone, but the pain was so bad. It came a time when I had to cry everywhere I went. She saw the tears. She saw the pain, and she said, there's a place to go at 1 o'clock today. Will you go with me? I was a little apprehensive, but I trusted her. And isn't the greatest thing in the world is to trust somebody? I trusted Shirley. 1 o'clock, I was ready. And we went right across the street into this basement of a church. And I looked around... And there were about eight women sitting around. And at that time, there weren't many men in the program. I was so glad the men had finally come in and realized that they are, have the same kind of problems, too. It's great to know that. And they were all sitting there. They were dressed up. They looked good. Their hair was in place. They were just bouncy. They were going to play golf. They were going here and there. And all I could think of while I looked at them was, I'm going home to John. What's going to happen when I leave here? Well, they gave me a lot of literature, 
And they gave me that warm welcome. And they gave me those love, those thoughts of love. You could feel the love penetrating that they understood. And here I am, the only black person in the room. And I said to myself, wow, Martin Luther King's dream has finally come true. Everybody's overcome but me. (laughs) And I sit there and I listen. And they told me, just keep coming back and listening. I really wanted to pour out. I wanted to let them know what was home, what my children were going through, what I was going through with. I wanted them to tell me what I should do when they did not tell me what I should do. But they talked about the meeting and what they had done. They told me about the gratitude they had for the program. And I listened. I didn't really understand. All of it didn't sink through because I was waiting for that one answer. How do you get rid of them? Do you kill them? How do you do that and get away with it and not have to go to jail? But they didn't tell me. They just said, keep coming back. It works. And I said, it works. Okay. And from then on, I started coming back. And I still didn't hear the answer. But they told me one thing. They said, you can decide not to decide. Wow. That was a relief. That was part of my getting out of my prison. I didn't have to decide today. I could think about it. I could go over it. But I didn't have to make that decision to leave today. And I, that just opened up a whole new world. They told me it was a disease. Finally, I had an answer to why he drank so much. He couldn't help but not drink. That was all he could do. And I wanted to know why. I thought it was me or all these children because my father-in-law said if you have over five that they'll start drinking and I had ten. (laughs) My God. And they told me about the three C's and you all know the three C's. They really helped. You can't cure it. You didn't cause it. You can't control it. Those three things stuck. With my packet full of literature, which I took home, threw on the coffee table for him to read, (laughs) thinking this is going to hit it. If he reads this, he'll understand me. He piled it all up, tore it up, threw it in the garbage. I had to get more literature. I didn't have any more. But I was still working on him and not me. But I could decide not to decide. They taught me about the slogans. And the main one I like, and this is what I heard after being in the program, how important is it? How important is it that I make that decision right now? How important is it that I let myself out of this self-made prison right now? Because I'm only living in today. I can look back to the past but not dwell on it. Not look to the future but just this 24 hours. And I could decide not to decide. So I needed that barrier up there for me. They said listen and learn. And you'll notice 
Many times when you go to meetings and you see people coming in, how they want to just spill it out, let everybody know. You just got to let somebody know, man, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. Tell me something. But you listen and learn. And you finally hear somebody that you can identify with. Somebody that has been in your footsteps. And then you learn from that. They taught me those 12 steps of recovery. People will tell you about, oh, I took the first and the, the third and the fifth and the seventh. Honey, you've got to reach each step. Because if you don't go up every one of those 12 steps, you're going to trip. You've got to climb each one. And it takes time. Nothing happens overnight. It's within the 24 hours. In every problem in my life, I take the 12 steps and apply it. If it's work-related and I'm not getting along with somebody, that's very rare. I apply the 12 steps to each one of my problems. It carries me through. And the traditions, the 12 traditions, helps me to understand my meanings. And if somebody seems to be talking too much or I'm not liking what they're saying and I feel like I should just stop them, I realize that I have 12 traditions to abide from. And I need to listen and know what they mean and give others a chance. And if they talk too much, maybe they need to get it out then. And it's okay, accept them for where they're at. We have to learn. And in Al and I, we learn to accept people for where they're at. Al and I brought order into my life. I began to be able to put things into its right perspective. After I got an Al-Anon, I was able to go back to college. After, raised, after having ten children, I was in college with my oldest daughter at Nazareth. And I'd see her through the hall. She'd say, hi, Mommy. I'd say, hi, bye. And it was so good. It was so good to go back. I went to Brockport. And I was learning. And I remember one professor saying to me, and he said to the class, he said, if you want a good self-concept, you have to be able to get up in the morning and look at yourself naked in a mirror and feel good about yourself. I haven't been able to do that yet. <laughs> he has tried it, and he said it works. My God, the man weighs about 200 pounds, and if it works for him, it'll work for anybody. And he's a professor, and I believe him. In Al-Anon, I learned to meditate. You know, many of us don't know how to meditate when we come to Al-Anon because we've been meditating on, on the, the alcoholics along and the people in our lives that aren't doing the things we want them to do. And you know what I do, and it helps. If anything or anybody is bothering me, I take a different color balloon and I put them inside of it. And I tell them what I don't like about them. And I set them up to my higher power. If I'm real mad, they go in a black balloon. <laughs> if I'm not so mad, they might go in a yellow balloon. Just different colors. My favorite color is fuchsia. And I'll send the ones that just are okay in the fuchsia balloons. But that helps. And I let it go. 
That was the only way of detachment I could learn then. Because it's so hard to detach with love. I remember when I decided to decide not to live like I was living and not to allow my children the pain that they had experienced. I told John I was leaving. He said, good. We had a beautiful townhouse then, and I was just so happy in it. I loved my place. But I knew I couldn't live there. My curtains were always closed. I was so scared people were peeking in. Although they had those curtains closed, and a lot of them are in AA today in al -Anon. It works. I got my nephews and everybody to help me move. I got the apartment ready to go. Still hoping that he would say, Okay, I'm going to change for you, Arlene. He laid there on the grass with a bottle of vodka. He said, wait a minute, let me put the last thing on, and that was the bed. Isn't that synonymous in some way? The bed went on last. He helped put it there, went back and laid down in his pajamas, all the neighbors out there looking, waving goodbye. I said, well, this is it. And the children were in the van with me, and we all drove off to our new apartment. A few days later, he entered into a treatment center on his own. He's been 14 years sober without a slip, and I had nothing to do with it. All the talking. All the praying until I let go and really let God, nothing worked. And then after he got out, stayed the 30 days, and about a year later we decided to go back together. And I'm going to tell you one thing. There still is some issues that have to be resolved, even if, if a person is drinking or not, there was issues to be resolved in me, and I hadn't dealt with them. Do you realize we still couldn't communicate, and he was sober and I was in a program? We still didn't have that communication. We had love, no communication. Uh, sex was even going down. I mean, there was no communication. So we decided to separate. And it was mutual. I needed to find me, and he needed to find him. We were so young when we married, and all I knew was that those kids were his. He was starting to accept them, saying, well, that one does look a little bit like me, and that one does act a little bit about like me. And it was okay. So he went and got an apartment, and me and the children stayed in our place, and it was good. Now, he came over about every other day bringing us stuff. He loves to cook. I don't like to cook anymore. I cooked enough. But he brought over food, and he'd stay a minute, and uh, he would leave. And that happened about, that's been about six years now. How it is today, you know, I want to tell you, if there's any newcomers in this room, and I don't know, and I call a newcomer less than a year to me, because there's so much to learn. How many newcomers are here? You stick with it. It works. 
you are able to get out of your prison, your self-made prison. There are great advantages in this program. There is love. There is trust. There is hope. And you even find God, a God that you never understood before, a loving person that opens up doors for you. Stay in it. You're not going to get the answers today. You're not going to get them in six months. But you do like I do. You, you go. You help make the coffee. You help put out the literature. You do the little things. And you keep coming back. And the man, you'll feel like a minority like I did, being the only black in the room. But that's okay. Because you become strong and you find out we're all one. There is no color. There's no barriers in Alamance. There's just us. I went to Mississippi to visit my daughter. Um, her husband was just finishing uh, doing his, um, he's a surgeon now. He was just finishing up in the service. And I said, I'm going to a meeting. My daughter said, oh, you're going in the city to a meeting? Mama, you don't know what to expect. I said, yeah, I'm going. She said, well, I'm going with you. I said, okay, bye. Come on, let's go. And we went. Do you know there were so many black people in that meeting? It was a beautiful meeting, and I was so welcomed. Anywhere, everywhere you go, there is love. Because we learn through the eyes of the program and other people, a lot of love. Get yourself a sponsor. I'm telling you, it's so important. Get somebody you can talk to, not just a close member of that family, not your wife or your husband or your aunt or uncle or mother. Get somebody, especially somebody not just like you. Somebody a little different. And my sponsor's like that. She's special. I can call her at 1, 2, 3 in the morning. Of course, don't call me that time. I have my tape on. But get a sponsor you can call any time of the night. <laughs> any time of the day or night that's going to spend time with you. That you can go out and do your inventory with. Get somebody you can trust. There are people in this program you can trust. They wouldn't be here if you couldn't if the, you couldn't trust them. They can't stay that long. Get a seasoned member. I don't like that word old timers. We're seasoned. I've been in here fifteen and a half years and I'm a seasoned member. Keep going to your meetings. Try the different meetings. Sit back, listen and learn at those meetings. Go to your AA. Please attend open AA meetings. You get so much out of them. You learn why. You learn the reasons. And they're so outspoken in their meetings. I love it. Because they just let it go. When they feel shitty, they say they feel shitty. We're, we're, we say it a different way. I feel awful. But they feel shitty and they let people know. <laughs> I need to hear that. I need to hear the correct words. Instead of soft behind, as my uncle said, I used to have I ever saw that. I want to hear that. Drop into those AA meetings. Do that for yourself. If you can't do it for yourself, do it for me. Because you learn a lot. And you'll understand more. You know, I think about the adult children. And I have spoken at a lot of adult children meetings. Although my father was a passive drinker, and he gave out money during his drinking, and he didn't beat any of us. Still, I saw what my husband put my children through, that I allowed him to put them through. You see, I still had the keys. 
I could have gotten out of that prison, but waiting for him to change, it was very hard. But the adult children have really been through a lot. There's a lot of pain there. There's a lot of lack of trust there. They have been hurt so deeply by people they thought should love them and hold them. People that were there in their lives that, that the higher power put them, they thought they put them there for, to love them and give them the strength and hope they needed. These people were sick too and they couldn't do it. And the adult children have to realize that we just didn't know any better. That I didn't know any better. That my focus wasn't right and my husband had a disease. He was wrapped around the bottle and I was wrapped around him. We couldn't get apart. They have to understand my sickness. When somebody first told me that I was insane, I hated it, but I was. And I think I am today in some areas, but that's okay. Because I have a fellowship to help me through the insanity. We have to let the adult children express themselves. They have gone through many terrifying experiences. My, one of my youngest daughter just told me recently that a cousin whom I trusted that I let babysit had violated her. That, that just killed me. It tore me apart to think that this cousin whom I trusted so much, who would talk to me and give me comfort, who was in a program, that he had violated her. But I had to learn to forgive him. And I had to learn my, my, uh, to forgive myself for allowing it to happen. But at least she trusted me enough to tell me. If she didn't tell me then, I know now. And I know to watch out for these things. Service is great. When I was institutional coordinator, as I said, I made those prisons. And I went to those drug places. And I work at a job today teaching parenting classes in the drug places, in the jails, in the schools. Seven teachers working with me, and we love it. And I hope I'm opening some doors for them. And I'm letting them know also I'm slipping in our program so they know they're out there. My boss doesn't know that, but that's okay. What she doesn't know doesn't hurt her. <laughs> but I'm trying to help. I've learned that I don't say I have problems anymore. I have many, many challenges. I have been through many, many challenges. In 1982, my daughter was coming out of the hospital. She had been to emergency, and they, her ear was hurting, and they said, Well, Anita, you come back in the morning because we're full. It was about 10.30 at night around that time. It was raining quite bad. So she called me from the hospital, and she said, Mom, I'm going to walk home. I said, Do you want me to come and get you? She said, No. She said, it's just right around the corner. I only live around the corner. Mommy, I can make it. She had called me the day be uh, before because it was coming close to Mother's Day, and she asked me what, what would I like. Well, I love earrings. And I said, earrings, needy. I want a pair of earrings. She said, I'll get you some earrings. So that night, a little after 11, I got a phone call. They said, rush right to the hospital. And when I rushed there, I saw the DA, the assistant district attorney. I wondered, I said, 
What's he doing there? That was the first one I saw. They said a drunken driver accident. My daughter stayed in a coma 21 days. And I went up to see her, well, all the time, but on that 21st day, to hold her hand as I usually did. And when I ran in there, they said, don't you know? I said, no, what? She died a half an hour ago. And all I could think of, she was born by the aid of a drunk, and she died by the aid of a drunk. But I was able to forgive that guy. You know, when we went for the hearing, and I expected a guy to come out there with a long beard and sloppy, and somebody here was this young fella in tears, clean cut. We had to sit across from him, and I was able to forgive him. All I wanted to know was, did she say anything as he drove her the size of a football field, and he got out and found out she was at the end of the car, a truck man he had. He said, she said, Mommy. That was the last thing she said. But you know, two weeks prior to that, she had asked my husband to get on his knees and pray with her because she wanted to accept the higher power in her life. And she did that. So I know where Needy is today. And that's what sustained me with all of my Al-Anon friends. And when I went to the funeral parlor, when they laid her out, at the head of the casket was my oldest daughter and my sponsor. And that carried me through. That carried me through. Each death is an opportunity. And it just made me closer to my program. It helped me to want to do more service work, to want to be more involved, and to want to express more love to families that were suffering. I could feel the pain. And then, for another nine years, things seemed to be going all right until 1991. And another daughter went into Syracuse Hospital. She went there for the weekend. She went into a coma. She had cirrhosis of the liver. She chose to drink with it. She died there. She was 34. She had never gotten married, neither one of these, had never gotten married or never had children. The pain, yes, it was hard. But I still had my friends in Al-Anon. I still had my God. I didn't give up on him, and my husband didn't take a drink over it. We still kept on going. That was in May of 1991. And then... My mother and I had gotten very close after my aunt passed. We'd go shopping together. I bought her clothes. She loved to dress young. She said, Arlene, I don't like your kids to pick me out clothes because they pick me out old-fashioned clothes. So I would take her shopping and pick her out young clothes. She always liked to look young. In fact, she liked her hair dyed. Now, I never dyed my hair, but Mama, uh, I'm thinking about it, but Mama, she didn't want that white hair to show. She didn't want it. I don't know why not, but that was how she felt at that time. 
So uh, she kept it pure black, and she liked to dress young, and she was shaped very little. She was small, and we looked quite a bit alike. And that August, she caught the flu in 1991, and that was okay then. And then in December, the day after Christmas, she died. I had went up to the hospital. I wanted to tell her that my mammogram came out okay. And I was happy. I went and bought her a hairnet because she wanted it. And I walked in the room, and she was laying there. I said, why aren't those things going up and down? The nurses said, you didn't know. I said, no. She's passed. She was a strength to me because she... She loved our program. She would go to the AA picnics. She would go to the al non meetings with me. She never understood them, but she knew that I understood. And she loved me for that. And she was sort of like a, a strong power in our family. She kept us all on the straight and narrow. She was a very quiet woman. She wasn't outspoken like me, but she had that peace that beats all of understanding that we get in this program. And then, my brother took sick, my baby brother, he's 42. My brother was an intravenous needle user years ago. He contracted AIDS. And I saw him go down from a big-time basketball player where colleges were looking for him, writing, wanting him to come there to a little thin 80-pound six-foot-two guy. And I was there all the time with him. And he passed in August, August 15th. And that night before he died, he called me up. He said, uh, I said, how do you feel, Bunky? He said, I feel good. He said, all I want to do is see you selling sweet potato pies outside my door. Now, I had made him three sweet potato pies, which my daughter said could probably kill them, but it wasn't bad. <laughs> it wasn't bad. They called me that Saturday morning, and they said, come on over, and he's gone. So I went, and I, as uh, the old caretaker, they expect Arlene to make all the arrangements, and she did. He wasn't married. He left a little girl. Last week, I lost my son to the same disease, 39 years old. Back to used to take the needle with my brother. He was my son that went through a lot with my husband. He saw a lot between me and him, a lot of the fighting and arguing. But a month before he died, he gave himself to the Lord with my husband right there. And all he said, tell me, before he died, he said, give your life to the Lord, Mama. Just keep giving your life to the Lord. And that's what rings through me. He did not lose weight. Like my brother did. We were able to show his body. Painful and it's very hard. I don't know how I get through it. One day at a time, the grace of God, cards coming in, and my sponsor, who calls me up and said, 
You just keep on keeping on because it's an opportunity for you. And I see why. And I wondered. I said, with different women at work said, you've been through so much. Well, let me tell you what somebody wrote to me in Al-Anon memory. And I put it in my article in the Northern Highlights. For those of us with little faith, no excuse or reason is good enough. For those of us with faith, no explanation is necessary. I read that all the time. And I understand that I'm going to see them, and I know all that, but it still hurts. None of them that died were married and had children. I am raising a nine-year-old grandson whose mother chooses to be on drugs. He's the love of my life. He's a wonderful boy. He's waiting for me to get home so he can get ready for his Halloween party. I have a one- and a three-year-old granddaughter that live there with their mother, that, uh, and they all call me Mima. They never could say grandma, and I explained it to them why they call me Mima. So I have all this life around me, and that helps too. But my husband hasn't drank over it, and I haven't given up Al-Anon over it, because this is a lifelong program. I have learned faith from you. I have learned that no matter what happens, how it happens, when it happens, or why it happens, that we go on one day at a time and we hang in there and we don't give up. We don't get a degree but I believe one day we get our rewards. And I get a reward when I can share my message because somebody somewhere has been through or is going through some of the things that I've been through. I've learned to trust and I hope our adult children will learn to trust. My children have. Slowly, some of them have. Others, I don't know when, but there is hope. And we get that hope and that strength. There are seven of them left now. Three have gone. We've become closer. There's a love between us and a bond that has not been there before. But I noticed with every dark cloud, we see that silver line. That sun comes up anyhow. We can't stop it. And that sun comes up. So nothing remains dark forever. And that's okay. I want you to know that uh, I took it upon me in September to look at a, go look at a house. Always wanted a house with a deck. I'd like to sit out there and have my coffee and see the sunrise. And with a little garden in the front, a uh, flower garden, I looked at that house. I said I wanted it. Friday, uh, Thursday, my broker called me and said, you got it. <laughs> and I did it all by myself. My name's the only one on it. And guess what? John's coming to live with me in it. But one thing about Al-Anon people, we're, we always got a loophole. I made sure my name's the only one I know. <laughs> but that's okay, too. Yes, I have found the key to get out of my prison. And I use it every day in my life to stay out. 
I don't want to be bounded anymore by circumstances. I don't want to be bounded anymore by pain. I don't want anybody else to try to control me and I allow them to do it. I want to be able to make my own decisions and I do it just like with the house. I saw it. I said, that's the house. And I went right to my broker. I said, that's the house. And I ride around it day and night to make sure that's the house. <laughs> and I'm getting the house. And I'm getting John back one day at a time. And I made sure I have a big yard that my grandchildren can come to it. And I know, you know, I'm not buying this house to live to pay for it because I'm going to leave it just to them to have. So they'll have something, but I won't have to be paying rent anymore. And that's fine. It makes it good because I'll have something that belongs to me for today. And that's all we have is today. It's been wonderful coming here and I appreciate it. I was very nervous, but when I see the friends, and when I see the smiles, when I see the hope, when I see the trust, and I see the gentleman I'm telling you to hang in there, and if you're a double winner, God bless you. Stay in both programs. They both work. Stay in them. Keep coming to meetings. Give us your support and your love. And... I finally overcome. I have finally overcome. Yes, Dr. Martin Luther King's dream has finally come true for Arlene Merriweather. Free at last. Free at last. Thank God Almighty. I'm free at last.